we'll spend a little bit of time in the word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins. Uh, Man, there's so much that's given to us in your son, Jesus. There's so much grace that's been lavished upon us because of your work in Jesus upon our behalf. The fact that we get a look at your son this morning and think about him and talk about him and celebrate him is just an incredible blessing. And to do it here at this place with these people is icing on the cake. Uh, Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity we have. We ask your blessing on this time. Give me clarity of thought and speech as I present your word. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So, um, okay, I just, I just got to say this. Uh, this week I got a call about my past sermon and somebody from Florida called me. The person knows who they are. They're not here in this room, but they're from Florida. He called and he, he wanted to ask what my deal was with Santa because last week I preached Jesus is better than Santa and he wanted to know what the issue was. And I, I just want to say I don't have an issue with Santa I just think Jesus is better, and I suppose if Jeff's listening right now, Jeff knows that I'm talking about him because I said his name out loud, okay? Last night, we went to Ezra's tap dance. Uh, he did a recital. Did a great job. I think he was the, the best dancer there. I'm a little biased, but I think he was. Uh, there was this other kid that did, man, he, he danced to his own song, he was dancing his heart out. He was doing river dance while everybody else was doing ball step, ball step. And he just went. He just went. And uh, AJ and I am convinced he is, he, he was the second best dancer of the night. Stole, stole the show. There, there was a couple songs that weren't about Santa, but all of them were about Santa. And, and I thought it was funny, um, just all the different different ones. And I kind of still have a little bit of a middle school sense of humor with this strange theological way that I look at things. And I was listening to the one song and I just was chuckling to myself. I probably look like a crazy person sitting in a dark room with a whole bunch of kids keeled over just laughing while kids are dancing up on stage. Probably not the best look, but that's what happened. And it was a song, Santa Claus is coming to town. Are you, you familiar with this? Okay, so as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, okay, this is a strange Santa gospel song, right? It speaks of the, the omni or the omniscience of Santa. He, he knows all about you. And just in case you weren't already creeped out, he watches you while you sleep. And if you still aren't creeped out, don't worry. He'll sneak into your house and eat all your cookies while you're asleep. There is something interesting about the song that, that I, I, I walked away with going, huh, that, that's an interesting thing. He says, you better be good for goodness sake. That, that's the gospel of Santa, by the way, the modern gospel, modern Santa gospel. You have to be good for the sake of just being good, right? For the sake of goodness. That, that's, what, that's what the modern Santa offers. Just be good on the basis of just being good, right? And, and what do you get? You get an overpriced toy under your tree and he eats all of your desserts while he watches you while you sleep. I, 
it's not that I'm picking on Santa. I'm kind of am making fun of some of the stuff. Um, I think Santa, Santa is one of the, the better superheroes of our time. I think he's way better than Spider-Man, right? He's way better than Superman. That's how I think of Santa. He's a really good superhero. But even if all of the stuff that we said about Santa was true, doesn't that still make Jesus better? Like all the stuff that Jesus is and all the stuff that Jesus offers is better. He's better. He's better in his person. He's better in his authority. He's better in what he gives. Even the gift he gives is far better than any gift that Santa could ever give. And so I'm using Santa as a springboard to talk about Jesus this morning because we want to talk about how Jesus is better than Santa, right? He's better. Jesus is better than the myths. He's better than the culture. He's better than all the stuff that we can think of. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus is better. Last week, we started in Hebrews 1, and we were in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, and we looked at how Jesus was not only just better than Santa, he was better than the Old Testament. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests. Jesus is better than everyone. And the reason that Jesus is better, and the first reason that we saw, was because Jesus reveals God. He reveals God. He's a spokesman. He is the spokesman. Unanimously, the spokesman. Last week, we discussed that Jesus, being God, fully knows God. God can only, God's the only one that can fully know God. And because he's human, he is able to communicate the attributes of God and the will of God far better than anyone else because he knows. Every time I talk about God and you talk about God, we may know God, but we know God because he has to reveal himself to us, right? We, we are always in a position of learning. We're always in a position of growing. Jesus never had to take a theology course because he knows God perfectly. Just that alone makes Jesus better than all of us. That makes Jesus better than Santa. This morning, we're going to look at the second part of verse 2. Very short phrase, steeped, steeped in theological goodness. We're going to look at Jesus is better because he is the heir of all things. He's the heir. He's getting everything. Everything is his. That makes him better. That makes him more superior. That, that makes him better in rank. That makes him better in position. He's the sovereign Lord. He gets everything. And so as we look at the short clause this morning, I just realized what I did there, the short clause. Uh, that was really unintentional, but now I pointed it out. Now it's weird. Uh, so you look at the sec we're going to look at the middle part there of that sentence and literally just going to break it apart word by word. Whom he appointed heir of all things. That first part in, or that middle part in verse 2. So turn with me to Hebrews 1, 2. We're going to just look at these, we're going to break it up into parts. So the first thing we're going to look at is that Jesus is appointed. We're going to talk about this appointment. Then we're going to look at he is the heir. Okay, and we're going to define what that means, that he's the heir. And then we're going to define all, all things. That's what we're going to do. He's appointed, he's the heir, and he gets all things. So let's first look at this, that Jesus is appointed. It's interesting because it's in the, it indicates this event that has happened in the past. He was appointed, right? So the question is, who appointed him? 
So it would be God the Father, right? Whom he appointed. So speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the whom. He is God the Father. God the Father at one time in the past appointed Jesus Christ. Now there's a little bit of a debate of when this appointment happened. When did God the Father appoint Jesus Christ to be heir? The debate is really between two points in time. The first is before the foundation of the world, Jesus became the heir. And then there's the second opinion that says, well, Jesus became the heir at his first coming, right? When he was born. So Christmas is really celebrating the fact that he is identified as the heir. I'm going to be honest. I lean towards the first one. I lean towards the first one that this appointment is not something that God just goes, "Uh uh-oh, Adam sinned. How are we going to fix this problem? And then he starts throwing solutions out. And he finally goes, you know what? The only solution I have left is to send Jesus. So Jesus, you're volunteered to go down and die on the cross for our sins. This is, this is plan 157 out of all the other plans because all the other plans have failed. No, that is not the case. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was appointed to be the heir. I think of it like this. This is a really bad illustration, but it makes sense in my mind. Hopefully, it'll help you. Imagine somebody who creates a business, and he wants to, he wants to call that business so-and-so and sons, right? And he has a son, and he's excited, and he goes, my son is going to take over the business. Son isn't even born yet, but he already says, my son, he's already appointed to take over the business. And guess what? As the son grows up, the dad gradually take, brings the son into the, into the business, uh, introduces him as the heir apparent. Everybody knows this is the heir apparent. Comes to Christmas parties, comes to all sorts of things. When he's out of high school, he's, he gets a job working on some of those lower jobs, and he works his way through, but it's always with the idea that he's heir apparent. In one sense, it's kind of how I think about this issue of, of the appointment of Jesus. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was determined to be the heir. And then throughout of redemptive history, as God reveals his will and his character, is saying, there's one coming, and this is what he's going to look like. He's going to be the heir. And then Jesus comes, and what, what is said? This is the one. This is him. This is him. This is the heir. This is the guy. And then Jesus dies, and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to take that role on as the heir, okay? So God, I think God, selected Jesus before the foundation of the world. Jesus comes from the Father. He has this authority as God. There's several passages we could look at to kind of piece this together. Um, This morning, just because of time, I just want to look at a couple passages that refer to this eternal decree in which God declares Jesus as son. By the way, I use that phrase eternal decree. That's the theological language that before the foundation of the world, God determined there would be certain things that would take place, certain things that would happen. And he predetermined this is what will happen. And he decreed it to happen. And it will happen. Okay, so there's a couple passages we can look at. Let's first look at Ephesians. We were there this morning By the way, Greg is starting the book of Ephesians in Sunday school. I would recommend everybody show up. It's it's a great book. The book of Ephesians is a great book. If we just start in verse 3, 
Notice what it says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, first of all, we know that God, here Paul is speaking well of God the Father, right? He is praising God the Father. He's worshiping God the Father. And the reason of why he's worshiping God the Father is because God the Father has blessed us, looked at us favorably, lavished his grace upon us. And how did he lavish his grace upon us? It was because of and the working of Christ Jesus. Because we are vitally tied to Jesus, we are looked favorably, right? That's the idea. Because he's blessed us in Christ. And notice the type of blessings that we receive. At least the ones that Paul's concerned about here. It's every spiritual blessing. So when we refer to this as a spiritual blessing, this is something that you can't necessarily see. You can't necessarily measure, right? There's lots of things that have happened to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you didn't feel. They just happened. This is who you are now, right? It's what it is. That's what a spiritual blessing is. Now, God has blessed us with lots of stuff. I'm not saying that those other blessings aren't blessings, but Paul is concerned about these spiritual blessings, these things that we have in Christ, and, and even further, the, the, the idea that these are spiritual blessings that are waiting for us, and one day we'll fully realize the reality of these blessings. Notice they're in heavenly places, right? We don't get them now. They're waiting for us. And then notice what he says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before the foundation of the world? Of course. In Christ? Of course. Well, how can he do that? Well, because this has been the plan the entire time. Right? Jesus, already before the foundation of the world, was chosen to be the heir and accomplish salvation on the cross. The birth of Jesus is the plan. You see that, right? He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. It's already assumed we're in him, in that choosing before the foundation of the world. Therefore, there must have been something that happened before the foundation of the world where Jesus was appointed the heir. There's another passage that gives us a little bit of a conversation between the Trinity. Go with me to Psalm chapter 2. This passage is repeated over and over again throughout the New Testament, and it's one of those things that was initially said, and then it's kind of like an echo throughout all of redemptive history. I don't know if you've ever been in a big hallway, or you've heard some sort of delay where you say something, and then there's the, the echo that bounces back, and it bounces back, and it bounces back. This is like that divine echo. It's mentioned in eternity past, and it just continues to echo throughout the entirety of the New Testament, pointing to Jesus as the heir. So notice in Psalm 2, verse 7, he says, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This phrase of the begottenness of Jesus does not refer to the fact that Jesus at one time did not exist, and now he does. This refers to the however confusing this might be to our minds, this refers to the fact that Jesus is the Son, therefore the Son receives the inheritance. It speaks of Jesus as being fully of the same nature as God the Father, and it speaks of this interesting relationship that voluntarily happens within the Trinity where the 
each member is volunteering to each other, right? Where they are submissive to each other. So Jesus has eternally been the son. And he is eternally submitted to the father. He's the one that has been from eternity past determined to be the heir. And this statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you, has been echoed throughout eternity. And there's several times where the, where the New Testament authors, they think of this the statement, and they say, and this is what we mean. This is what God means when he talks about the resurrection, that, that it identifies Jesus as the begotten one, as the son. So Jesus is appointed. God the Father was the one who selected him. Even Jesus in John 13, 3, realized that right before his crucifixion, he realized that he had come from the Father and that he's about ready to go back to the Father. The question is, why does this matter? Is this just some pure academic, we can answer some Bible trivia questions of when was Jesus appointed? This is why it matters. One, Jesus has always been the solution for sin. He's always been. He's always been the solution for redemption. There's never been another, there's never been another solution. He is the solution. It also means this. Jesus has been the divinely chosen heir. So it's not like we're going to follow Jesus and then one day God's going to send his other son. Right? It's not like Jesus is going to do something that the dad goes, that's it, you lose your inheritance. He has always been and will always be the one to inherit. And because he is the divine solution for sin, because he is the divinely chosen heir, it then makes sense that he is then the divinely chosen object of worship. He's always been this. He's always been God, and he's always been the object of worship. So that's the first thing, right? He's been appointed. Now let's look at this next thing where Jesus is the heir. This word for heir means the one who receives something as a benefactor, right? We often think of the heir as the son or the child receiving the stuff from their parents, right? And normally that stuff is a value. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's sentimental value. Sometimes it's sentimental value from the parents that is not transferred over to the kids. But that's never happened in the history of this church, right? All of us can say all the stuff we receive from our folks has been valuable in our hearts, right? Like that one old Christmas tree that was given to us. That was a valuable thing in our heart, wasn't it, hon? And we were sad when it broke. You understand what I'm saying, right? Parents leave us a lot of stuff. But, but here, this heir is, is something bigger than just God the Father's leaving Jesus a whole bunch of stuff, right? It's, it's much more than that. It's the idea that, that, that Jesus will be the inheritor of everything. He will take control of everything. Everything is his. This inheritance has been talked about from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. As, God, as long as God's been talking to humans, Jesus has been in the conversation and this idea of this inheritance of what the Messiah will receive has been said over and over and over and over again. And if you missed it, you're not reading right. 
In fact, it's so obvious you should see it without really any Bible college education. I'd like to highlight a couple of these just quickly. Let's go to one of the first ones. This isn't the first one, but it's one of the first ones. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. So uh, this is the call of Abram, who will later become Abraham. Notice what the Lord says, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now we, that's all that's told of what God says. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that God directed Abraham in the direction he should go. But just imagine, at least from what we have, imagine God just tells you, go. And you go, where? And he goes, You'll know it when you get there. You'll know it. You know, how do I know where? You'll know. Okay. Okay. I just, this way? Yeah. Anyways. Weird humor here. Um, but notice what else he says. So, so, so leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father to a land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. What an incredible promise, right? I just won't give you a big family. I'm going to make you a nation. And not just a nation, a great nation. And he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Well, that's incredible. Imagine God told you this. Imagine you get a direct revelation from God and he says, from you, there's going to be this great nation. And you're going to be, you're going to be this blessing to all these people. And he says, and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all of the families shall be blessed. All the families will be blessed. How are all the families blessed? Through, Paul tells us through Jesus. That's what he's talking about. It's, it's this one that's going to come whose name is Jesus. And this Abrahamic covenant is once again said in chapter 15. It's then once again said in chapter 17. It's then once again said in chapter 22 of this promise. I will make you a great nation. I'll give you this land. You're going to be a blessing, right? Then as God goes on and as, the, as, the, as he continues to talk to the descendants of Abraham, there's this covenant of this land. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to bring you back to the land. That's going to happen. And there's going to be one guy that's going to come like, he's going to be like Moses. And whatever he says, you need to listen to him. Who's that? That's Jesus. Once again, Jesus is mentioned. And then later on to one of the descendants of Abraham, it's, his name is David. What does he say to David in 2 Samuel? I'm going to raise up one and he will reign on your throne forever. That's Jesus. And then in Jeremiah, what does he say? I'm going to make a new covenant with your fathers. And, and, and what's the basis of that new covenant? It's Jesus. Jesus is mentioned in all these covenants and all these promises. And all this incredible inheritance is promised. And then Jesus steps on the scene. The Old Testament believers did not foresee the church. Here we are. Um, they, didn't, they didn't see us coming. And as we begin to learn about Jesus, we begin to realize this incredible fact that Jesus is going to inherit all things. He's going to come again and sit on David's throne and reign, and he will be recognized as God on earth. And so you will have this 
time where God will be on earth, reign, be recognized as God on earth and in heaven. And he will be in control and be recognized as being in control of all of it. That's incredible. That's the inheritance. Now, there are things that are said in the New Testament that I got to be honest with you, it, it's kind of mind-boggling to me. There's statements made in the book of Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, that also says you and I will be joint heirs with Jesus. I don't fully grasp that. I mean, I know what those words mean. I, I, theologically, I can, I can talk about those things and engage those in my mind, but there's a certain point where my mind just stops and goes, no, what? How can I co-inherit with Christ? That, that's too much. This is the grace that God's lavished upon us. This, this is, he's the heir, right? And because he's the heir of all things, what does this make him? This makes him preeminent. This is what God's doing. God is elevating Jesus so that Jesus will be universally recognized as God. All things will be summed up under Jesus. So when God chose Jesus in eternity past to be the heir, this is what he's doing. All things are summing up under Jesus. Okay. Now let's go to this next part of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. All right. God appointed him heir, and then here we go. You ready? Of all things. Literally, of all. That's what it is. Things is kind of assumed. The word all, you ready for this, means everything. Another synonym we could use is all of it. All of it. It's all his. Colossians, what does Paul tell us? He's the creator, which is what we'll talk about next week. He's the creator. He created all things, and he created it for who? For himself. It's for him. He's going to receive it. So here, here's this interesting thing that we have as believers. It's kind of interesting how we, we, we try to think of, of the, our relationship with, with Christ. Not only are we going to inherit with Christ, we're going to be co-inheritors, but you do realize that you and I, we are, the, we are part of that inheritance. So, so we are being given to Jesus as a gift from the Father. And we're also then going to co-inherit. That's remarkable, right? It's incredible. He gets all things. So the question is, how can Jesus be in control of all things? You ready? Here, here's the earth-shattering statement. Because he's God. Jesus is God. Only God can inherit all things. Only God can be in control of all things. Therefore, Jesus can inherit all things because he is God. I was trying to think of this yesterday as I was waiting in line to go see my son tap dance. And I was trying to think how cool would that be to have the ability to speed up time. Because... I don't like standing in lines. This is not fun. And I thought, what kind of power that would be, right? Just that weird mind exercise of how cool would that be? And then I thought, actually, I don't want that power. That, that would be, if I had the control of time, oh, that'd be bad for everybody. 
right? Could you, could you imagine if I truly acted independent and I had actual freedom and self-existence? You don't want me to have that. And I'll be honest, I don't want any of you to have that either. Could you imagine if we were in control of everything and by just our mere will, we said you exist and hold together. Just, just that power alone. None of us could ever begin to wield that kind of power. It's impossible. We can't do that. By the nature of being a creature, we can never have that power. We can never assume that power. The only one that has that power innate is God, and Jesus can do this. He's going to be in control of everything. And it's going to be universally recognized that he's in control of everything. It's his. He owns it. He possesses it. It's his. It's to do with what he wants. Now, we believe, as we should, that God already owns everything. He's already in control of everything. It's not universally recognized that God's in control of everything. One day it will be, and that's what we're excited about. So he's in control now, but someday there's going to be this great coronation where the whole world will go, Jesus is the one that's holding this whole thing together. And it's his, and it's for him. He gets it all. Everything's for him. All for him. Everything. It's incredible. It's incredible that he, that he, will, he will exercise such visible authority. This is Jesus. Now, as much as we might like Santa Claus, and as much as we might sing the song, he sees you while you're sleeping, he, he doesn't hold all things together. It's not like we're trying to sum up the whole existence of the cosmos for Santa Claus, right? And if all of the Santa Claus movies are correct... The only reason he has power is because people believe in him. What kind of God is that? That the moment you stop believing in him, he ceases to exist. Jesus, he's never in any state to lose his existence or lose his power. In fact, the plan is still intact. Everything will be summed up under Jesus Christ. Now, last week we talked about the guy who Santa Claus is based off of, Pastor Nick of Myra. Pastor Nicholas. Some call him a saint, and he is a saint, as much as you and I are saints. Holy, set apart. We're part of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, set apart. That's what the word saint means, the one that's set apart. Pastor Nick is a fellow saint. Pastor Nick, guess what? Someday, He's going to be a co-heir with Jesus, like you and I are going to be, right? Now, maybe you might not believe me. Maybe you go, that's too fantastic, because I've been saying it quite a bit. I just want to show you real quick. Go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might 
also be glorified with him. You see that? Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Nicholas of, of Myra was a pastor. He taught the gospel. He suffered for the sake of Jesus. If he believed solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ for his salvation, then guess what? That means Santa Claus is a joint heir with Jesus because he believed in Jesus. Therefore, just by saying that means that he automatically views Jesus as being more superior than himself, right? If last week was true that Pastor Nick of Mira would affirm that Jesus is the revelation of God, he would definitely affirm that Jesus is the heir of all things. And if Jesus is the heir of all things, that makes Jesus superior to all of us. So the question is, what do we do with this other than just kind of chuckle? Oh, that's funny. Jesus is better than Santa. I get it. There's much more to this. Of course, this is something that we need to know. This is an important theological perspective that we need to have when we're thinking about Jesus, right? Sometimes we just think about Jesus and what he did on the cross and that we get salvation from our sins and we get to go to heaven, which is great. Amen. I'm very thankful for that. We have to understand that Jesus gives us so much more. And knowing the person and work of Jesus is helpful in our perspective as we live life. And knowing that Jesus is the heir of all things, that everything is going to be for Jesus, he's going to own it and control it, well then that all of a sudden puts us in a proper perspective of viewing him, doesn't it? If he's going to get everything, then everything's for him, right? The way I live, the way I breathe, the way I act, the way I wear my wedding ring, the way, the way I even celebrate his birthday. It's all for him, right? He's going to get it all. It's, everything's for him. Every single one of my motives should be for him. If he's the heir of all things, then guess what? I can worry all I want about all the things going on in the world, but guess what? In the end, Jesus wins. He wins. So what does your worrying do? What does it do? Those moments that we don't act out of faith, but we act out of worry. Guess what? He's going to win regardless of whether you're worrying or not. So isn't it just easier just to trust him in the midst of this? God has a plan, and for us to see that plan? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned with things going on around the world and in our life. past couple weeks have been pretty stressful for a lot of us. That's okay. It's okay that we have difficult times in our life. That's part of our existence here. And of course, there's things happening all around the world that we are concerned about. But that should never stop us from walking by faith. That should never stop us from trusting in Jesus, remaining faithful and obedient to the opportunities he has right in front of us. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden start getting bunkers and getting all the guns just in case somebody comes. You know what it does mean? It does mean that we say, oh, everything is about Jesus. Maybe everything in my life should be about the honoring and glorifying of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe I need to talk more about Jesus. Maybe that's one of the problems in my community is that we're not talking about Jesus enough. Maybe, that, maybe that's the issue. Maybe I have trouble and I don't have the right perspective of saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then that second part, and give me today my daily bread. 
All of that is part of that faithfulness to Jesus, walking by faith, trusting him. And if Jesus is the heir of all things, that means that the promises that are given to us in Jesus Christ are secure. Nothing will ever happen to remove those promises. And the faith that we have is like a bedrock. It is a strong foundation. And so we shouldn't be worried or ashamed of Jesus. We're on the winning team. We win. He wins. And we're with him. His fate is our fate. So let us, yes, say Jesus is better than Santa. Yep. But let us also say Jesus is better than everybody. Right? There's nobody else that's going to become the heir of all things, no matter how great or how precious we think that person is. That's Jesus. And so let us have that proper perspective and let us passionately worship Jesus and trust Jesus who will accomplish what he has promised to us. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible statement that Jesus is the heir of all things. And just thank you for giving us all these passages that help us understand that inheritance and help us understand that you have all of this together. Uh, that we don't have to worry. You, ha you, have, you have all of history planned out. And we are just learning and we're, we're, we're trusting you that you have our best interest and we're trusting you with your promises. Father, you know, you know that we're just clay. You, you know how difficult it is for us down here and how easy it is for us to get distracted. We ask that by your spirit, by your word, that we'll constantly remember your son Jesus and that we will constantly look to him as the um, heir of all things, and that our trust would solely be on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for everything that you bless us with in your son's name. Amen. All right, so as the musicians come up, uh, one question. I forgot.